If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you happen to be visiting with us, uh, we slowly make our way through books of the Bible, and you've uh, caught us at the near the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. Today we're going to look at the first 10 verses together, and I want to remind you where we left off two weeks ago. Hannah is the barren wife of a man named Elkanah. And Hannah prays and asks the Lord for a son. And she makes a vow saying, Lord, if you give him to me, I will give him back to you so that he can serve you all the days of his life. And two weeks ago, we saw that Hannah conceives and she bore a son and called his name Samuel. We then saw that Hannah kept her vow to God. She did wait a little bit. She waited until her son was weaned. She didn't want to put the burden of a nursing infant on some male priests. Uh, They wouldn't have known what to do. And so she waits until her son is three or four years old and then takes him to the place of worship, and hands him over to the high priest and says, I have lent him to the Lord for as long as he lives. This is, again, an incredible woman. One of the best in all of Scripture. In her time of distress, she turned to the Lord and didn't get angry with him and run away from him. When she prays, she's not calling down imprecations and curses upon the harassing woman that lives in her house that we saw in chapter 1. She asks for a son, and her greatest desire for him is that he would know and serve the Lord. She keeps her vow. She doesn't renege on it and say, well, you know, I, I made that promise under great emotional duress. Surely you don't expect me to keep it. No, she kept it. She's quite the model. We look at a woman like Hannah and we see just an exemplary example of godly character. And that continues today. Her modeling in her prayer of praise. If you look at the superscript, those little words at the very beginning of the chapter... uh, My Bible says Hannah's prayer. Uh, Yours might say Hannah's song of thanksgiving. That's what we're looking at today. This is another of Hannah's prayers, but it's obviously from the superscript different. Her first prayer, uh, she's deeply distressed. She's not eating. She's weeping bitterly. She described herself as being troubled in spirit, and she pours out her heart to the Lord. But there's a much different tenor in today's prayer. There's no bitterness, but it's a song of praise and thanksgiving and adoration for who God is and what God has done and what God will do. And I want to make an important comment before we get into this. In just a moment, we're going to read this prayer. 
And as we read it, some of you might think, I could never pray like that. This woman, is she's just on a whole nother level. She's a professional prayer, and I'm just junior varsity. Some of you might be tempted to think that, and I wanted to tell you, hold your horses. Do not begin this sermon with the thought that, well, I could, I could never pray like Hannah. Do you know what Hannah is most likely doing? Most likely, she is praying the psalms and songs and prayers of her day. She's heard these words already in worship. She's heard similar prayers. She's sung similar songs. And she takes those familiar words of praise... Words that fit her circumstance, and she offers them back to the Lord. And you can do the very same thing. Uh, I remind you that you have the Hebrew hymnal in your Bible. We read from it this morning, the, the Psalms. Read them. Pray them. Speak them back to God. I promise you, He won't fail you for plagiarizing your prayers. I mean, isn't it honoring for Him? For His children to speak back to Him His own word. Take them and use them. Pray His word back to Him. This is something we all can do. And it's not just the Psalms. I mean, you think of the treasure trove we have from church history. The beautiful, theologically rich hymns that we sing. Prayer books we have access to, such as the Valley of Vision. Creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that we read this morning. Confessions and catechisms like the Westminster Standards. We have all of these. Borrow from them, quote them, use them in your prayers, apply them to your specific situations. Don't feel the pressure of having to reinvent the wheel every time you pray. For example, you can pray as we read this morning. Lord, you do not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love towards those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you, O God, remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so you, O Lord, show compassion on those who fear your name. And then you might add, Lord, grow my reverent fear and awe of your holy name. You could pray a hymn. Speak to him the words, Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of 
turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And pray a creed. Lord, I believe in the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. I mean, you see what I'm doing? Take the Psalms, take the hymns, take the creeds and confessions of the church. Apply them to your current station in life. Adopt those that describe the current state of your soul and pray them back to him. I'm convinced that's what's going on here. Hannah has heard these words before in worship. And now she's going to offer them back to God. And if that's true, and what I've just said is true, then this means that we need to be familiar with these words as well. We need to read the Psalms. We need to commit parts or whole sections to memory. We need to sing and memorize the hymns that we sing together in worship. Listen, I've said before, it would bring me no greater joy than for you to text me and be like, well, I'm just walking around the house humming a hymn that we sang this morning. Or maybe before you open your Bible that you read at home, you rest your hand upon those precious pages and repeat a line that you've heard over and over and over and over and over again. Lord, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Remember these words, and when the time comes, offer them in faith back to him. You can do exactly what Hannah is about to do. Don't forget. Let's pray, and then we'll read her prayer. Father God, be with us in this time as we open your word. Would you bless your people as they sit under the ministry of the word? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel 2, I'm going to read the first ten verses together. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. 
The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. All right, so let's look at Hannah's prayer. We're going to begin with the first three verses where Hannah declares, Lord, there is none like you. This is a God who saves. This is what Hannah is confessing. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Notice Hannah isn't complaining about having to keep her vow. She's rejoicing in her God. Her heart is glad. Her head is no longer drooped in sorrow and disgrace. No, now it is held high. And all mocking, unbelieving voices are stopped because of what God has done for her. And she says, I rejoice in your salvation, in your mighty works of grace and deliverance. You know what we're prone to do? We get this backwards. And we will often praise and rejoice in the gifts and completely forget about the giver. I want to tell you an embarrassing story. Earlier this summer, my parents rented a house in the mountains so that all the grandkids could be to, could get together. And it, it, was, it was great. It was extremely high energy. It was great. But long drive home. Uh, there's lots of traffic. I was very, very grateful to get home. My parents actually came down I-59 and somewhere south of Fort Payne. An 18-wheeler turned over, and they were stuck on the interstate for two hours. We were very glad to get home. And once we get back, I'm just talking with Molly in the kitchen, and I'm complimenting the minivan. And I'm just so grateful that the minivan safely got us all that way home. And I just said something stupid. I said, Molly, I'm, I'm just going to go out there and thank the old girl for getting us home safely. You know what my bride said to me? She said, or you could thank God. We do that, don't we? We get this backwards. We forget. We get short-sighted and we praise the gift and not the giver. 
I mean, notice what Hannah does here. She doesn't say, I rejoice in a healthy pregnancy. I rejoice in my son Samuel. I rejoice that he will serve you all the days of his life. She says, Lord, my heart exalts in you. My strength and my honor is in you. I rejoice in what you have done. Oh, we need to keep this order straight. To be grateful for the gifts. But to give praise to the giver. Then on in verse 2, Hannah can... Uh, confesses that there is no one like God. And the first way she describes this is by saying that there is none holy like you. Do you remember what it means to be holy? It's to be completely set apart from the rest of creation. To be completely untainted with any moral corruption. And you and I can look around the world and we see things that are wrong. And we see things that are sinful. And we see things that are not as they should be. And our God isn't like that. He is totally set apart from the rest of creation. And in Him there is no darkness. There is no corruption. There is no infirmity. Instead, everything he does and everything he is is pure and good and perfect. He is never perverse. He is never cruel. He is never incompetent. As the prophet Habakkuk says, he is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. That's because he's holy. And I mean, we... We really could spend the entire sermon here on the holiness of God. Again, it is the attribute of God that most clearly illustrates His utter uniqueness. He is holy and we are not. Every time I think of the holiness of God, I'm reminded of our dear departed father in the faith, R.C. Sproul. It's what he trumpeted incessantly throughout his ministry and writing. And real quick, before I give you a sprawl quote, are you familiar with what it means to speak of something in the superlative? To speak in the superlative is saying, this is the best of the best, or the worst of the worst. That's, that, that's what it means. And Sproul comments and says, There is only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels. Where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy, or even that He is holy, holy, but that He is holy, Holy, holy. The heavenly host above the throne of God singing to each other in antiphonal response. A single word repeated over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of His glory. 
But Hannah believes this too. Which is why she confesses, Lord, there is none like you. And then she continues with the image of a rock. What, what does a rock communicate? I mean, it, it communicates solidity and reliability. He, he's the rock that will never be moved or shaken. He is the steadfast refuge and protector for his people, no matter the fierceness of the storms. He's the firm foundation upon which we build our lives. And how wondrous it is to hold these two attributes of God together. That the same one who is thrice called holy is also the solid rock and refuge of all who would look to and trust in him. What a verse for us to recall to mind in times of trouble. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Whatever comes, we remember that He is our rock and that His purpose is always and forever holy and perfect and good. Hannah continues on in verse 3 to speak of the omniscience of God, saying He knows all things. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. He knows the intentions of our hearts. And not only does he know, but also by him actions are weighed. Meaning that he is the judge and we are not. There is so much arrogance in the human heart. And you see it today, but I'm sure it's always been this way since the fall. There have always been arrogant, self-sufficient boasters thinking they can judge and weigh God's actions. They criticize the deeds of the Almighty. But Hannah gives warning saying, shut your mouth. You know not of whom you speak. There is none like our God. Continuing on in verse, really verse 4 all the way through 8, we see a number of back and forths where the Lord will completely reverse the fortunes of the strong and the weak. We see here that he will exalt the humble and humble the proud. The first will be made last and the last will be made first. And from chapter 1, we know that this is something Hannah has personally experienced. As one who is previously barren, but has now been given by the power of God a son. But there are a number of these. You've got the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who had plenty now hire themselves out for bread, but the hungry are now full. The poor are raised up from the dust and the needy from the ash heap to sit with princes in the seat of honor. And while it's not said, we could assume conversely that the important ones who sat in the high places will find themselves seated in the dust. 
This is what our God does. And it is something that so many people today are desperately longing for. Here's my illustration. I don't know if you've heard it yet, but there is a song that has set the internet on fire over the last two weeks. Now, I'm not going to quote it, and a warning to parents, it might not be a song you play in the car with young children. There is some strong language. But it's entitled, Rich Men North of Richmond, by a man named Oliver Anthony. It is an anthem for the blue-collar worker, for the forgotten man, the man that our elite would view as the dregs of society. It's a song by a man who feels that the rich men north of Richmond, i.e. Washington, D.C., just keep kicking people like him down. And by all accounts, he's not the only person that feels that way. I mean, I think the the one video I saw has been up two weeks and it has 44 million views. The song has been reacted to by... Countless others racking up tens of thousands of views as well. I think last week it took a top spot on both Apple Music and Spotify. And this is some random guy from Appalachia. And I'll admit that it struck me when I first heard it. But I did, I felt a bit hypocritical listening to it and nodding along because I was sitting in the Grand Hotel in Mackinac Island. (laughs) But here's my point of bringing it up. It resonated with a ton of people. We have so many neighbors who feel this same way. You have neighbors, co-workers, family members who see themselves, maybe you see your own self, as one sitting in the dust on the ash heap. They see themselves as forgotten and they're despondent and they're hopeless and they feel looked down upon. They feel as unimportant people living in an unimportant place. And they're crying out for help. And this is important. This is what our world so obviously and desperately needs to hear. We have a God who takes up the cause of the downcast and the weak. We have a God who will cause the meek to inherit the earth. And I think the songwriter would agree with me. Our hope isn't in Washington. It's in the Lord. Hannah's Words just struck me as so applicable. And oh, it is my prayer that we would be those who direct the eyes of our despondent neighbors far beyond Washington. That we would direct their eyes upward to the holy God, to the rock of ages, to the one who established the pillars of the earth and then tell them, You are not unknown 
or unimportant to him. He made a vow before the foundation of the world to send his only begotten son to die so that you might sit as royalty in a seat of honor. You might not have a senator who is for you, but Almighty God is for you. He is the Savior of the poor in spirit. He is the Savior of the beaten down. He is the Savior of the weak. So look to Him in faith. Believe who He is. Believe what He has done. Receive it and praise His holy name. This this is who our God is. This is what He does. I've got another example from church history. After the death of his beloved wife, John Calvin wrote to a friend and said, May the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction, which would certainly have overcome me had not he who raises up the prostrate Strengthens the weak and refreshes the weary, stretched forth his hand from heaven to me. That's what our God does. That's what he did for Hannah. It's what he did for John Calvin. It's what he will certainly do for you, dear saint. He will stretch forth his hand from heaven to you. And support you under your heavy affliction. And strengthen you when you are weak. And refresh you when you are weary. A couple more things to get to before I land the plane. Look at the second half of verse 9. What you see there could be summarized as the moral or linchpin of this prayer. It could be the theme statement of this entire prayer. It could be the theme statement for all of Scripture. Or for all of the Christian life. It's a big statement, John. For not by might shall a man prevail. It wasn't the strength of men that prevailed at the Red Sea. It wasn't the strength of men that prevailed as David stood before Goliath. It wasn't the strength of men that was, that, well, the strength of men couldn't keep the Lord Jesus in the grave. The victory of God's people is never found in the strength of men. Where is it found? In the Lord. In 1 Samuel 17, I I can't wait to get here. I'm going to be really excited. Young David stands before the giant Philistine and says, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Not by might shall a man prevail, but by the Lord. That's where our help and strength and succor is found. In the divine hand, stretched down from heaven to deliver his covenant people. On that same note, 
This prayer ends in verse 10 with a mention of divine judgment upon the adversaries of the Lord. But notice how that's going to happen. At whose hand will this judgment come? At the hands of a king. Now, I'll I'll remind you that up to this point in Israel's history, have they had a king? No. They've had judges, but they've never had a king ever. But here is Hannah saying that Almighty God will deliver his people and defeat their enemies by giving strength to his king. Now, as we'll see, this will certainly be seen in the life of King David. He would slay the giant. He would have great victories over his enemies. His mighty men would be remembered for their valor. But Hannah's words don't terminate with David. Look at the very last word of Hannah's prayer. What is it? Anointed. Do you know what that word anointed is when you translate it into the Greek? Christos. Or as we might say in English, Christ. How shall man prevail? How shall God's enemies be broken to pieces? He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the power of his Christ. Let's jump ahead a thousand years in biblical history. Imagine you're there with Hannah, you get in a time machine, you type in 1,000 years, hit the button, you open the door. You know what you'll find? You'll find a young woman named Mary singing a song of praise that sounds very much like the words of Hannah. An angel visited and told her that she would bear a son who would be this promised king in Christ. The one that Hannah had seen from far off had finally come. And in response to that news, Mary sang this song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Those words spoken a thousand years later 
by another godly woman. And I hope that jumping from Hannah's praise to Mary's praise reminds you that, like, this is one story, folks. One story. One perfect, complete, true story that you and I still find, we we find ourselves caught up in it now. One final thing to mention. This is me hitting the runway. All those reversals of fortune that are mentioned in verses 4 through 8, how did they happen? How are the weak strengthened? How are the poor made rich? How are the needy lifted up and seated in a place of honor? How does that happen? Does God simply snap his fingers and make it appear? No, long, the long ago promised Christ would take upon himself all that is ours and he would freely give to any who would believe all that is his. And this is the gospel. This happens through a wonderful exchange and I can't say it any better than Calvin so I'll just end with his words. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us. That by his descent to earth he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness He has strengthened us by His power. That receiving our poverty unto Himself, He has transferred His wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon Himself, which oppresses us, He has clothed us with His righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, would you make us more people who praise your name? We have manifold reasons to do so. You are so great and so mighty and so high and lifted up. And you are so kind and so near and so tender to your people. You have taken away all that was ours. Our sin, our shame, our reproach. And you have put them on your son, Jesus Christ. And you have taken all that was rightly his. All that he earned through his perfect obedience. And you have freely given it to us. Father, we do thank you for your word for this one story where we see in detail 
this great salvation of yours unfold. Father, and through looking upon it, through meditating upon the perfections of your character, would we be grown and strengthened and find peace and contentment all our days. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.